Yeah. <laughs> if you would take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 2. <clears throat> we love some Bible and some hip-hop up here in Fondren. <laughs> Acts chapter 2, and we're, we're going to put up the passage um, in probably five to seven minutes is my guesstimation. Uh, you know, we wanted, as we started the year before we started our very first series and aligned people into small groups, we wanted to take a few weeks to put some big rocks in the in the church jar, and Gary did a great job if you were here the first Sunday talking to us about one of those big rocks, what is a disciple, and we looked at Luke chapter 9, he led us through Luke 9, 57 to 62, a great passage of scripture on the cost of being a disciple, not just the benefits, and last week I led us as we looked at Ephesians 3, 14 to 21, and we talked about what is, what is it like to be a people of prayer, and many of us, I confess to my own life, have at times given up on prayer, but we need to have a conviction if we're really really going to seek God, we need to have a conviction that uh, Paul had in spades. And he shares in a single phrase in the beautiful great prayer of Ephesians 3, our God is able. And last week we talked about that uh, very idea. This morning we're going to talk about what it means to be a family, a a faith family, uh, even specifically about being a member uh, of a church. And we're, uh, this is not just so you can rest easy. Relaxed about that, but I want to talk to you about something that I feel like has fallen into disrepute. That uh, I think it's been hijacked by and victimized by some really bad ideas. In a moment, we're going to uh, look at uh, Acts, this great passage of Scripture, and draw some truth from it. Before we do, I want to put up a quote. And I'm going to read it myself out loud. And then all those who are willing, I want you, uh, after I read it, to, to read it along with me, okay? The church is not an institution for perfect people. It is a sanctuary for sinners saved by grace, a nursery for God's sweet children to be nurtured and grow strong. It is the fold for Christ's sheep, the home for God's family. The church is the dearest place on earth. Would you, if you're willing, to say that out loud with me? Do it with some gusto, if you will. The church is not an institution for perfect people. It is a sanctuary for sinners saved by grace, a nursery for God's sweet children to be nurtured and to grow strong. It is the fold for Christ's sheep, the home for God's family. The church is the dearest place on earth. Now, let the skeptics abound. I know you're in here. The church is the dearest place on earth. Really? Before we examine that, I want to tell you who said this. This quote comes to us from Charles Haddon Spurgeon. We have a Haddon uh, kid in our, in our ministry, in our church family, H-A-D-D-O-N. Charles Spurgeon is, is one of my favorite preachers. I've got the full collection of his sermons in my library right behind that wall there. And Charles Haddon Spurgeon was a, a preacher at Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. He preached uh, in front of 10,000 people in the days before microphones. And I learned in seminary from Spurgeon, from his works in that time, that if you were, wanted to be a preacher in pastor school, they would uh, first measure your chest. And I suppose, if, as I understand it, if you had a little bird chest, uh, like I had 20 years ago, that you, you couldn't be a preacher. But you had to bring it, evidently. And Spurgeon said this, it, uh, All those years ago, Metropolitan Tabernacle, the church is the dearest place on earth. Do we believe that? And why would he say it? Why could he say it? No doubt, 
you, like me, you've seen churches split. You've seen congregations be judgmental. You've seen leadership become harsh. How could we say the church is the dearest place on earth? Years ago when I did two consecutive summers in Europe with Campus Crusade for Christ, I remember being in Germany only for a short season. We were on our way to Croatia. And I remember talking to a a German church leader. And this German church leader was talking about the church, specifically about the topic of compassion. And he said to me, Robert, the church in Germany, uh, the idea is that the state does all the compassion, the welfare, the health and human services, the unemployment, the need meeting. And people look from the outside to the church inside and they wonder if they really care. The church in Germany, my friend told me, this church leader, he said it's viewed as some sort of state-sponsored religious rituals for insiders. And I thought, are we becoming that? If, if, If a church turns into itself, Is that how we're viewed? Not state-sponsored in America, but religious rituals, meaningless, mysterious religious rituals just for insiders. Bob Goff, some of you know, some of you met Bob Goff, the author of Love Does. One of, I think, one of the leading Christian thinkers and just lovers of, of humanity in our day. And he talks about He was in our community, by the way, a couple of uh, years ago, a year and a half ago, came, did a breakfast at Brent's with some leaders. But Bob Goff talks about, in one of his recent writings, he talks about uh, years ago when he bought a big home. And it was a turn-of-the-century Victorian home that had many, many rooms in this gigantic mansion. And in the rooms, they had their own uh, fireplaces, and all the rooms did, and most of the rooms had stairwells, private stairwells that, that came up to them. And there was in the center of this house, they, they had plans to convert it into over a dozen uh, premium office spaces. And there was a huge safe in the middle of the home. And it, uh, they learned that the home used to be owned by Wyatt Earp. Y'all know Wyatt Earp, read of him, a lawman and a gambler. That explains the safe, if you know a little bit of Wyatt Earp history. And as they began to restore this beautiful building, they, in the middle of the project, realized something that they had never never occurred to them. And though this great place had stairwells, it wasn't accessible to people with disabilities. They had a lot of steps, hundreds of steps in this building, steps that would allow a lot of people to get in, but not everybody. And they were proud of the steps and the way they spiraled and the way they looked but they realized they had to have ramps. They had to turn some of these stairs into ramps. And what a metaphor, Bob Goff says, for the church. We've got a lot of steps, don't we? But are we as accessible as we need to be? And today I'm saying to to the church, to our church, to this body known as Fondra Church, we've got steps and those are good steps, but we need ramps of grace and love and forgiveness. We need to be able to offer people ramps of hope here in this community and all around the Jackson Jackson metro area, area, every life, every people group that we can touch. We need ramps. And we also, as we in a moment, we're going to look at Acts 2, we need some verbs. You know, the word Christian is a noun. And a Christian is a person who follows Jesus. 
The word follow is a verb. Nouns need verbs. Jesus loved verbs. Come, learn, rest, love, die, take, take up, give, go. And it stands to reason, doesn't it, that if we claim to be a follower of Jesus, then we're going to love the verbs that Jesus loved. But somewhere along the way, y'all, the word Christian has become an adjective. We have Christian music, Christian movies, Christian t-shirts, Christian schools. And people on the outside are looking at Christian as an adjective and Christian has lost its meaning. And when Christian becomes an adjective instead of a noun with lively verbs, we become rightly labeled hypocrite because a hypocrite is nothing more than a noun without verbs, a lover who doesn't love, a giver who doesn't give, a follower who doesn't follow. And you see, we don't need a lot of adjectives if we follow Jesus. We have adjectives just as we do in front of Christian. We have adjectives um, in front of church. We, we say Baptist church, Lutheran church, as Fondren is, non-denominational church. We say traditional church, contemporary church, black church, white church. The most common adjective put in front of the word church in the New Testament, you know what it is? It's the word the. The church at Ephesus. The church at Philippi. The church at Thessalonica. The church at Laodicea. But my favorite word used before the word church is the one Jesus used in Matthew 16 when he said, I will build, say it if you know it, I will build my church. This ought to be his church. When we follow him, when our lives are peppered and sprinkled, marinated and sauteed with lively verbs, we don't have to worry about the adjectives. I prayed it right here on this stage last Sunday. I'm asking God this year for us to not be the church that hype things up, but that we will pray that his Holy Spirit will come down and give us the power that we need. Church, we need ramps to make this accessible so that we don't become at our own peril uh, an insider, a jargon-filled insider group with our own religious rituals. We need to speak to people, to know their names and speak their language, to be on their turf. And when it comes to getting in, we need to create steps and ramps and be creative and fun in how we do that. And we need to love the verbs that Jesus loved. We don't have to say it a lot. We don't have to be perfect people. We just need to be honest people. But the way that we stay away from hypocrisy is the verbs that we live that are part of our lives. Before Acts 2, I want to put up 1 Corinthians 4. Huge. God is just in burning this into me, this, this season of my life. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. You see that? Verbs. When Jesus said what he said to Peter in Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. 
that was the, that was the church conceived. And in the book of Acts that we're turning to now, Acts is the church as it is birthed. And look with me at Acts chapter 2, 42 to 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, in the margins of my Bible, not too long ago, I wrote the question, added to what? What were they added to? A philosophical system? Were they added to some loose knitting of souls at a gathering? What were they added to? They were added to a church. They were added to a a local body. And it says they were added to, they were devoted to each other. Who added? God added. God added as they were devoted to each other. And as Jesus in Matthew 16, the church conceived, Acts, the church birthed. And as the church was birthed, listen, because some of us are, we're being victimized by some really bad ideas and some angry Christian bloggers who are out to get people. But they were added to a church, and that church became a local church. And that local church had systems and structure around it, not so that it could be a bureaucratic nightmare, but so that people could be loved and they could be served so that needs could be met. Leaders were picked out, pointed out, and developed and loved and cared for so that they could in turn care for other people. The church growing. Here's what it says in Romans 12, 5. It says, so it is with Christ's body, We are many parts of one body, and we all belong to each other. Most versions say we are members of one another. Christ's body is one of the beautiful recurring metaphors that God uses for his people. And if you'll read that passage, you'll see that in the body, in Corinthians he talks about this, that we're different parts of that body. And some are visible parts, some not so visible, but he says all are important. We're all important. And he uses the example of the the toes, and he mentions specific body parts. Have you ever stubbed your toe? You ever got a splinter in your hand, and it just just, knocks you out, doesn't it? A guy the other day was like limping. I'm like, what's wrong? You got a splinter in my hand. He's limping with a splinter in his hand. I mean, you know, it's like... How big of a sissy are you, right? I mean, but we know, we know. And I, I, I remember years ago watching a World Series. I believe it was, I know it was the Arizona Diamondbacks and the big unit was pitching. Anybody remember Randy Johnson? He's the guy, by the way, who famously threw a fastball, six foot 10, by the way. When he stretches that body out, he's like at the home plate pretty much. And he, he released a ball. Some of you have seen this, one of the great sports bloopers of all time. And there was a birds in flight and the fastball hits a bird, uh, Sorry, those of you who love birds, but it just crushed the bird. It was just feathers everywhere and the end of that bird. But Randy Johnson, one time in the World Series, he gets something in his eye. 
And what happens? A big six foot ten, the best pitcher uh, probably at the time, he gets something in his eye. And what happens? The game stops. Uh, millions are watching at home, thousands in the stands, and they, they do what? They go to a commercial break because one guy has got something very, uh, some type of small particle in his eye. And the game stops. Shaquille O'Neal, the great basketball player, uh, he missed uh, several months of NBA action because of a big toe. Do you, do you get that? What Paul said so long ago is seen in our day that something can happen to one part and it affects the whole. And if we are knitted together like we need to be, that can be true of our church. It doesn't mean that everybody knows everything about everybody, but it means that we have joints and ligaments, as Paul said in Ephesians 4, that we're connected together and we know when somebody's hurting. And when they hurt, there's a sense of a reciprocal spirit where we weep with those who weep and we, we laugh with those who laugh. We're, we're connected together. Ephesians 2.19 uh, puts it this way. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. If you read that in its context, you'll see Paul talking about Gentiles, those who are far, and Jews, those who are near. In our day, it would be proper to interpret it this way. The Gentiles, those who are far, are people, man, that just, they partied like a rock star, right? They were far from God. Now you look at them, they're up in church today, right? Those are the Gentiles. They were far from God. They're those of us who are near, man. They're those of us who are at church all the time. And God is saying, I'm building a body. I'm building a family where we are members of one another. Those who are far away and those who are near. And those who are near need to hear the gospel through fresh lens. And those who are far need to be invited in. They need ramps into the household of God. If you were to later read Corinthians, which is about a church that grew, and though it grew and flourished, it had a lot of problems. Imagine that, a church with a lot of problems. They were grumbling and griping. They had sexual immorality. They didn't understand how to do communion. They had leadership squabbles. Some people were with Paul. Some people were with Apollos. He had to say, hey, this happens, this happens. God uses this guy, God uses this guy, but it is God who causes the growth. And despite all the glaring deficiencies of these church, he, God tells them that this can be a thing of beauty. And in 1 Corinthians 12, he talks about the body. In 1 Corinthians 11, backing up, he talks about gifts. There are specific gifts. Do you know your gift? Do, do you know your gift? I was with some friends uh, this weekend. I was like, man, I need, I need to go. I need to prepare. I got to study. They're like, man, I'm glad I'm not the preacher, man. Woo. I'm glad I don't do that. But what, what is your gift? What has God called you to do? Do you know your gift? Have you discovered it? And in what way are you deploying that? It's one of the great areas that I feel like our church needs to grow in, helping you discover the uniqueness that is you. Because it's not all about cookie-cutter conformity. It's about you being who God has made you to be. Defining that, discovering that, and then using it for him. And then what happened? Some people were some people were discovering their gifts and they were like pounding their chest and strutting their stuff and they had the, the pride of a peacock. They were like, Man, look at my gifts. My gifts are better than your gifts. And some people were crestfallen and sad and they were sitting on their hands and church for them was just something they attended every so often because they didn't feel good about their gifts or they didn't know their gifts. And there was a lot of, of, of a collision 
among people. And Paul, that's why he said in 1 Corinthians 13, you can do this, you can, have all, you can move mountains through your prayers, you can speak the very oracles of God, you can have such great faith, you can be a, a skilled in speaking. But if you don't have love, you don't have anything. What is it, church, that makes us go? What is it, church, that draws people to us like a magnet? Is it the fact that we're an organized body? Is it the fact that we have some gifted people, that we have lots of gifted people? Or is it the fact that we're loving one another really well? You know, there's a sequence to love. I was studying over the holidays. John, the disciple, the apostle of love, says, we love him because he first loved us. And I wonder, as we talk today about being a member of this body What is our love quotient? Where are we when it comes to love? Are we loving in a way that honors God? I remember in an elder meeting a couple of months ago, right upstairs, I remember my friend Joshua Metcalf. We were talking about some strategies and ideas and stuff. And Joshua said, hey, man, people are coming here to be loved on. Bam. That's it. Very little else. People are coming to be loved on. And church, we got we to gotta get there. I want in the balance of time that we have to talk a little bit about love, sort of from a, I want to give it from a romantic prism, and then we'll back up to, to where we are, where we can be as a church family. I want to give you a, a few ideas of love. The first is kind of the spark kind of love. And spark kind of love is you meet someone and it becomes uh, infatuation. There's passion, there's desire, there's romance. Uh, People are, they get that feeling of like, man, they're just, I mean, their feelings have been hijacked and they're flying. And by the way, neuroscientists tell us that it's the same dopamine and adrenaline rush that you get from being on cocaine, all right? So that's what love can do, right? It's what love did to Susan all those years ago, right? I mean, it just, it makes her crazy for me. That's understandable, obvious. Let's move on. But it, it, dopamine can do that. Love can do that. There's that, that spark kind of love and something happens. You're consumed by that other person. They're, they start like controlling your thoughts. And I mean, it is all about them. And it, that's a, it's a good thing. You know, the, the Bible does not remove itself from spark love, nor should you. It, it, it's a magical thing and, and it's a beautiful thing. Researchers tell us that spark kind of love can only really last at its heightened intensity for about six to nine months. And then what? It, it lands somewhere, right? It's, it burns bright and hot and then it fizzles. It starts off strong and it's all-consuming and then it fades if it's infatuation. But the next kind of love is substance love. This is, as the, as the very name suggests, this is deeper love. This is love when you have a common vision, when you share the same values, when you like that person's character qualities, you, you love who they are, and you, you share in that. And at some point along the way in this relationship, you're looking at somebody saying, you are my best friend. Sp- substance love endures. When spark love meets substance love, it's electric. But at some point along the way, it has to be greeted with sacrificial love. And sacrificial love is when you you built a life with somebody. You have a mate or 
best friend and you, you, you're moving along, but at some point, you're going to have to make sacrifices for them. You have to. You have to pay a price, but because you love them, you willingly, gladly pay that price. That is the gospel message. That is, that's the kind of love the Bible would say is agape love in the Greek. It's sacrificial love. It's Hebrews 12 where it says, Jesus, for the joy that set before him, he endured the cross. Did he want to go to the cross? He endured the cross, but he did it for the joy set before him. He was purchasing our pardon in the singular greatest act of sacrificial love ever. And I saw it not too long ago in one of my favorite uh, television shows, Friday Night Lights, where Coach and his wife, Tammy, he's the high school football coach of a small Texas town, and Tammy is his wife, and she's the principal at the school. And she gets a job offer in Philadelphia, which is a long way off from Texas. And you're thinking, man, he's the high school football coach. Y'all know in Texas, that's a big deal. People, people love him. He loves his work. He can't, you know, she can't take that because he's not going to move with her. He's the coach and she's the principal. But even though you see that tension as it plays out on this final episode of the final season, you see that you, you find yourself rooting for Tammy. And there's this one scene, and if you see this, where the coach is heading to the state championship game and he diverts and he goes to the mall because he knows his wife, Tammy, is at the mall with their daughter. And when he, he lands on their, their, their party at the mall and she sees him and she's surprised to see him, but she's worried because women worry and she's worried and she's wondering, why aren't you at the state championship game? Because that's where you need to be. And in this real dramatic scene, he says, I think you ought to take the job in Philadelphia and you ought to take me with you. And you're just so moved by this scene. And you're moved because it's rare. Because in most love scenes in movies, you know this, right? Uh, they're talking, it's the final scene, and you're just assuming a lot of things. You're assuming in this final scene, as they confess their undying love for each other, they've only got one obstacle, and when they confess their love, that obstacle is going to be overcome, and they're going to live happily ever after, right? And they're usually standing in the rain, or one of them's chasing, uh, running through the airport, trying to catch the other before they get on the plane, right? But this scene, to me, is so moving because it's so rare because it's about two people in everyday life living out all the cost and reward and struggle and sacrifice. And that's what love does. And that's the call for the church. Hey, we want you to enter into a church body. We want you to be a part of a family, and we're working hard. In fact, I think it's safe to say, right, Jeff, we're working daily to make sure that we're serving our community as, as well as we can. We had someone, not in our church, but across the way, get broken into. We've got security in the parking lot. We had several of you uh, ask for more parking. We, uh, Gary worked out a deal with Mike Peters across the way to park in Dueling and all around. And we, Some of you didn't know where to go on this campus, and we put signs up. We're working hard to, to be as organized. Just this, just this past summer, for the first time, we ordained deacons to help serve and care for people, to give us an organized body to make sure people are loved on and needs are met in our church. And those things are all very good. And it is very good for you to discover your gift and use it. But above all else, you and I, we're here because we want to get loved on. And that's my prayer, that God would raise up a household of faith that feels like a family. And can I just say, for a lot of us, Church is currently not the dearest place on earth because of church splits, 
congregational judgments, harsh leadership. And I do want to say from a big picture, I'm not calling out anybody, anything, anyone. I'm just talking about America. I'm talking about from my study and my understanding over the last four to five decades, we've been in the church, but we've been building corporations and not building community. And you've got a reality. I'm just telling you, follow me around for a month and you'll see pastors that are burnt out. And I don't know if you know this, but when pastors get burnt out, a lot of people get hurt. I want to ask you now, would you pray for me? I'm fine, but I just, I need you. I need you to pray for me. But pastors are getting burnt out left and right, and a lot of people are getting hurt. And you know what happens when pastors burn out? You find out later that there's been hidden addictions and affairs and a crumbling marriage, and you have products of that and people that never want to step foot in the door of a church ever again. And not only that, you have congregations, people in the congregations, they themselves are burned out. They signed up for the programs. They pushed the lever to, to work the machine and they're coming out the other end and they don't want anything to do with the church. They feel used. And we've been running corporations. We've been focusing on numbers instead of nourishment. We've been focusing on image instead of intimacy. We've been focusing on competition instead of compassion. We've been focusing on demanding things instead of seeing people be dedicated. And this is a call. It's a call to pray for our church and our leadership and for you and for all of the area churches. Uh, my friend at Bellwether had their church vandalized this week. And I, I text John Hute, a pastor friend, and said, you are the God. That's what was spray painted on their church. And he texts me back and we began to talk and we're going to have lunch next week. And two weeks ago, I met with a pastor that I admire in the community. We sat down and we talked and I said to him, I lowered my guard and I said to him, hey, you know, we're both senior pastors and I'm just going to put something on the table. Sometimes in the midst of the crowd, I get lonely. And he said, me too. And I believe God has just sparked a friendship that's going to bless me and my life and my wife and family and his life and his wife and his family and his church that's a whole lot bigger than this one. But are we willing to move away from this corporate model into a church community where we really love on each other? We want to ask you to today to get out of rows and into circles. There is a drift, especially among men. Will you listen to me, fellows? Especially among men. There's a drift to independence, to isolation, and to autonomy, and it's hurting us, and it's hurting our families. And I, maybe the word drift is not the right word because I think we really prize the people that we love or the guy that built the business. It's the 40-year-old who built the business from scratch. He has it all. He answers to nobody. He can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, with whoever he wants. And we say, that guy's my hero. But I'm telling you, he's a lot less happier than a lot of us. And if you're not careful, in this age of LinkedIn, what is that, by the way? A bunch of you are inviting me to be LinkedIn. I've, I've said no every single time, okay? If I'm, if I'm wrong, just see me after service, all right? I don't respond. I just, it's just pure apathy. I don't know what it is. But in this age of LinkedIn, if you're not careful, everybody becomes a client or a customer or a contact. And you know what? You, you live, you get up every day with an agenda. And can I tell you, it's hard to be in genuine community if you have an agenda. 
Some of you want me or sometimes her to sell something, to be involved in some multi-level thing, all right? I'm just, I'm just telling you that's not what God has called us to do. We can't do that because we would always have an agenda that would be different than the gospel. You do what God's calling you to do, but we're going to say no every single time. I want to pastor people, and here's the thing. The business model is hurting the church. The metaphor God uses is shepherds and sheep. And it doesn't, I've said it before in several contexts, that doesn't flatter us. But it is right, and that's what God uses. You know what, and God says, that's how I lead my people. And shepherds, sheep aren't great things, aren't they? You never see a slow motion picture of a sheep chasing a zebra, right? Just, <laughs> right? I'm about to catch that. You never see that with sheep. Because we're dumb, we're dirty, and we're defenseless. But if we don't stick together, there's a lone wolf and we're going to be lamb chops and we need each other. We need each other. And when we get out of rows and into circles, it's all about reading, studying, and discussing. And I can't tell you how much I love to hear it in our own lives and from some of you. Some of you are grappling with this idea. We did a couple of sermons on giving. We said we're not going to be afraid of money because money's killing us. And most of us, most of us are not even, we don't even have a plan to support the church that we love. Most of us aren't even thinking about, it's not even there to even think about giving. And I see people reading and studying and learning that and discussing that. And I see some guys getting together and talking about that with other guys and challenging each other. But we need to move. And if you've had a group, here's what we're saying, man, get going. This week, we're going to meet in here on Wednesday night. We're going to have a time to come together, and we're going to worship, and we're going to say, get going. And Gary's going to give some great motivation and instruction to do so to get us on the same page. And it's going to be a beautiful night in here on Wednesday to get going. If you're not in, sign up. Some of you have. We've got your card. We'll be calling you. But here's the thing. When you get in a circle, don't be afraid. You don't know the scripture. You don't, you're not going to be called on to pray out loud. All of our leaders have been trained to create a safe place for you, but begin to share. And here's what I'm saying. Some of you are going to go home and watch football today, and you're going to see a coach named Bill Belichick. What do you know about Bill Belichick? He wins a lot of games. But Bill Belichick, if you know this, he, he has a design. When he shows up at a press conference, his goal is not tell them anything. Have you ever seen him interview? They interview him, and it's the most deadpan, stoic interview you've ever seen. And he, 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 it, it, he's got the skill of a lawyer in cross-examination. Like, he knows, I'm going I'm to physically say words in English, but it's going to mean nothing. And it's going to tell you nothing about how I'm feeling, nothing about our game plan, nothing about what that loss did for me, nothing about what we're thinking about in the next round of the Super Bowl or whatever. That's Bill Belichick. And I'm saying to you people, especially you guys, man, that ain't the goal. That ain't the goal. Unpack your suitcase and share life together. And then lastly, I want to say, for those of us in circles, don't just make it about the circle. Because your church membership it has some baggage, and some of the baggage is, it, I blame it on American Express. Membership has its privileges. And we're saying if you become a member at Fonder Church, it's not about the privileges. It's about what you can contribute, what you can give. And every circle is powerful, and it becomes a little micro church where you can give back. And in your circle, challenge each other to live outside of your circle. Visiting hospitals planting gardens, 
throwing parties for people that don't get invited to parties. I can't tell who. You want it to be anonymous, but I know one of our small groups anonymously for several months collected clothes, good clothes, clothes for all sizes and ages, and they collected three or four trunk loads uh, uh, car truckloads of, of clothes and they drove into an under-resourced neighborhood and they put up a clothesline in between trees over a parking lot and they lined up these clothes and they went uh, inside the apartment building ringing doorbells and knocking on the doors and they said we were thrilled when these people came out to see they could shop for free in their own parking lot. We all know what terrorist cells do. But what if you were the opposite? What if your small group became the opposite of a terrorist cell? You plotted goodness. And you, did, you gave people glimpses of God's kingdom. Before I close with this, I want to share with you about a, a single mom in our church. I lifted this from her Facebook page this week. She's a single mom in our church. And our church has for a couple of years been ministering to her boys here in West Fondren. And this is what she posted on her Facebook wall in the wake of Jackson's violence. She herself said, this mom says, I know he'll rob somebody, but he ain't going to shoot no gun. Wow, is this really what society has come to? Parents, please get a hold of these young men. These senseless robberies have turned into murder. There are people in places who willingly will mentor your children. You know why she said that? Because there are people here who have been willingly mentoring her children. Now we ought to all stop and pray that that number grows and that we become that place. And I, just as we need to move from a corporation to a community, just as we need to move from rows to circles, I think we need to move away from, I hate this city. I'm getting out and there's no hope. Because in Jeremiah 29, 17, in fact, if you walk over to Salsa Dance Studio, where I saw a couple of you last night late, and you walk over there before you get to Fondren Art Gallery, you'll see a quotation on the wall, and it's one of our civic leaders from a while ago, but it's a quotation of Jeremiah 29, 17, where it says that you and I ought to seek the peace and the prosperity of the city. Now, it's a city, he said, in that context that is in exile. In other words, I'm not sure I want to be there, but seek the peace and prosperity of the city. And as a city has peace and prosperity, so will you. Do you realize our lives are more linked up than ever? And I'm just going to say, I don't want any crime. But the beauty of what crime can do to us is it, realize, it makes us realize we got to watch out for each other and we got to care for each other and we got to come together. And what I love about Fonderman, some of you are building the farmhouse in Madison. God bless you. Open up your home for our small group. I mean, it's a beautiful thing. But man, let's don't hate on Jackson. And what's great about Fonderman is you're worshiping here. And some of you are coming into town. And let's be a part of the blessing. Let's move away from corporation to community. Let's get out of rows and into circles. And let's move away from I hate this place to there is hope. Because with Jesus, there really is hope. And we can mentor these kids. And we can come around these single moms. And we can... We can we can show glimpses of God's goodness in this community. Let's pray. God, I pray that in the middle of the adjectives that describe churches, we wouldn't want to be labeled with anything. We would want this to be your church with godly leaders, men and women, 
who serve, who care for each other, who stay above the fray, the things that don't matter. And as we become a body, as people join our church, and Lord, as we discover our gifts, I pray that love would be paramount. People are coming here to be loved on. I'm coming here to be loved on. I want to be a disciple. I want to be a follower. I want to be a shepherd. I want my life to be marked by love. God, I pray for those here today that just need time. They need to sit back or sit in the back and they need to relax and not join anything. I pray that your grace would be over them today. They would take the time that they need. But Lord, for others who need to say, this is my church, this is my family, I want to be a part. I want to enter into a simple but meaningful process that would let our leadership know part of their role is to care for me and for for me to contribute to this church, to invest in it. Lord, you do the adding. Lord, at this point, I'm not concerned about numbers. I want us to be nourished. I want us to feed. I want souls in this room to to be led by, by still waters and green pastures to know the love of the Savior. God, bless us now as we stand and sing and as we take up this offering, I pray, pray that you would be blessed. Lord, you'd be honored as we give to you, as we receive this, uh, these tithes and offerings as an act of our worship, as a response to you being a provider for us. In Jesus we pray, amen. We're going to do that just now. We're going to stand and sing and take up our offering, and then we're going to close our service with something really quick and cool. We hope you'll stay.